Today, I'm fortunate to be speaking with John Stensholt. John writes for the Australian Financial Review on business, news, personal finance, but John is probably most well known as the editor of The Rich List and The Young Rich List and writing about the business of sport too. It's a fascinating discussion where John gives us some insight as to the overall themes from the richest people in Australia and the advice that they have shared with him. Without any further ado, I'm Ted Richards and here is my discussion with John Stensholt. You're listening to The Richards Report, where we will speak with investment experts from around the country. We will cut through the jargon to allow you to make more insightful investment decisions for your future. This is The Richards Report. Hi, John. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of The Richards Report. You produce the Financial Review Rich List each year. And on the podium this year is Anthony Pratt with $12.9 billion, Harry Triggyboff with $12.7 billion, $12.8 and Gina Reinhart with $12.68 billion. So uh, there's not much between the top three spots. I was looking at going, oh, there's only 0.2 between them. But then I realized well, that's actually $200 million when you're talking about uh, in the billions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you talk about someone going up, you know, 5% or 10% at that level. Uh, it's it's a huge amount of money. I think out of those three, Harry Triggerboff uh, went up the most. But because there's not, I mean, because Pratt went up slightly more, he he stayed number one for the year. So I don't know, or maybe I got the numbers wrong or something. And uh, Harry should be number one. No, but really, you're right. It's very very close. Which which means I guess it sets it up for could change next year. That's all part of the fun, really. So so John, these are private people. How do you do your valuations on someone? Because there's a perception that they're quite private. But is that what you're seeing in reality? Well, what we see in the background is absolutely different to that. You would be shocked to to find out the amount of information that these people uh, give us while we're researching the rich list every year. You'd be surprised uh, how much uh, they've told us over the years as well. And you'd be surprised how how really much that they care about where they finish on the list. It's uh, it, it's it's fascinating. So we we so what the, the list comes out at the end of May always has, particularly when it was you know, with BRW. It's thirty five years old, so it's been around for a long time. So these people, a lot of them, you know, are pretty old, right? They've been getting the annual call from us every year for a long time, so they're used to it. They know, and I guess you know, respect. That so you've got was, all their phone numbers? Oh, absolutely. Emails, <laughs> phone numbers, uh, you know, or. You know, every billionaire's got uh, got a person working for them, a consigliere or something yeah, like yeah, that, that, yep. that, you know, is uh, is assigned to uh, to deal with us. Uh, a lot of them, yeah, you're right, I deal with uh, on a one-on-one basis. So I get a team of researchers in. We spend a few months, you know, crunching the numbers. We go to them and say, this is what we think you're worth. And we give them the opportunity to, to come back to us, right? So it covers us legally too. So in case, you know, we don't get any surprises of people saying, why didn't you talk to us? This is completely wrong. So we give them the chance to, you know, talk to us on background if they want we we adhere strictly to that so everything that they tell us is confidential and it all gets to that number that we make public so i reckon probably 80 85 percent of the list engage with us on a confidential basis every year never underestimate someone's ego oh absolutely and as you say that podium position i look i've got so many interesting stories and probably i can't put a lot of names to them but i know harry for example a couple of years ago when he was number one no names but harry yeah that's right (laughs) oh harry wouldn't mind this because okay because harry triggerboff sydney apartments developer meriton you know he's built that city uh, residentially just about he's collected every rich list 
uh, that's ever. So he's been on every one right since 1983. He's collected each one of them. He's got them all on his, um, uh, you know, at his desk at work in the bookshelf there. He's, he likes to thumb through them to see, you know, all his peers from back in the day, the old pictures and stuff. So he gets a copy every year. When he was number one a couple of years ago, uh, uh, his staff did tell me that they, uh, you know, the boss was pretty happy that oh, day. Okay. That way. He went on, he went, he went easy on them that day because he was so happy. So, just a quick question before we go into a bit more detail. Uh, did Trump buy you dinner one night recently? Oh, <laughs> it's a great story. It's a it's a crazy story. It's a sort of crazy things you do when you when you, when you try to get a little insight, you know, into these billionaires. Well, yeah, he did. The president. I was over at Mar-a-Lago with Anthony Pratt. When so was this? It was uh, it was in April. So okay. leading up to the list, you know, I was uh, as we mentioned before, I was talking to Anthony Pratt about the rich list. Uh, look, you know, I, I knew he'd be close to number one. You know, we would have to do a story on him in some, or try to do a story, right? We don't have to. Uh, you know, he's an interesting guy. He's building all these factories. So he owns Vizzy and Pratt Industries in America, which, you know, the cardboard He's the cardboard making. king. He's the cardboard king. He really is, you know. Um, he's bet a lot on the U.S. manufacturing comeback, you know, factories, building factories in the Midwest, in America in particular. What, where's that? It's the Donald Trump heartland. That's where he won the election. You know, he's... Trump's talked a lot about manufacturing, bringing the manufacturing companies back to America, onshoring jobs, 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 jobs. Pratt's, Pratt is part of that, I suppose, yep. in a way. And it turns out that Pratt's wife, Claudine, has been, she's got a catering business in New York. She's dealt with the Trump organization for 15 years. It's all these sort of things that come together. Yep. So I guess Pratt being, you know, a, a guy who, you know, there's a lot of these people are pretty smart, right? They'll go with whoever's in power. He knows he's got it in with the with the Trump organization. Trump wins the presidency. He joins Mar-a-Lago, the exclusive country club where Trump hangs out on the weekends. He says to me, well, you know, let's go over there. You never know, you might get to see the president. So one thing leads to another. I've written a whole feature about it in the magazine that we put out. And yeah, uh, it turned out that I met Trump with Pratt because you know, Trump really rates Pratt. Yep. And he, um, yeah, he ended up, uh, ended up uh, buying his dinner, I suppose, uh, as you put it. What do you have? <laughs> this is the funny thing about Trump. You know, it's I wouldn't say it's the fanciest dining in the world. I mean, you know, Trump's famous for what eating steaks with uh, with ketchup, right? I mean, you know, hamburgers. He's, yeah. a, he's a meat and potatoes guy, literally, right? So, I hear offered in bed too. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I mean, hot dogs. So look, yeah, the Mar-a-Lago. It was. Uh, it was. I just remember. Oh, look, I had the fish, but there was things like the. Um, there was uh, there was meatloaf based on his mum's recipe on the menu as well, right? There's his uh, his favourite ice cream sundae. So these are pretty basic. Sort Sounds of like you're going to see frog in a pond or something. <laughs> yeah, that's there. right. Well, this is the funny thing. So yeah, it's all these sort of comfort foods that uh, look, you know, here's this guy running America likes. So that's what's on the menu. So it's not like a, a rock pool or yeah. a, you know, a, or any other fancy fine dining places. Okay, so we've got the cardboard king, yep. Anthony Pratt, number one, and then number two, as you mentioned, is Harry Triggerboff. Who owned uh, owns Meriton Apartments? Mm-hmm. So is it the apartments and that business model that he's so good and that he's made the money, or is it actually the land that the apartments sit on? Well, it's a combination, and that's an interesting point you make. So he has, you know, he built up his business for years and years and years, building apartments and selling them to people. And maybe I was just trying to think, sort of ten to fifteen years ago, the market was a bit slow. So what he started doing, he still wanted to keep building, so he built the apartments and to rent them out. Okay, so the rental market back then was very good. Okay, that's all well and good. So then he goes, okay, this is going really well. Why don't I start you know, renting them as um, service departments, getting into the hotel market? So he's in the last 10 years, Harry's become 
the largest owner of uh, hotel rooms in Australia. He owns more than four and a half thousand hotel rooms. Now, here we are going through a tourist boom, you know, Chinese tourists coming to Australia. Suddenly, he's got the apartment sales side of things. He's also got the hotels and service department side of things as well. So he's still in property, but he's probably seen you know where the property market's going to go. Instead of just being leveraged to one part of it, he's sort of working across both. So at the moment, uh, you know, Sydney hotel prices are going up and up and up because there's a, so many tourists flocking to Australia. He's reaping the benefits while maybe the apartment sales are slowing down a bit. So you can see the, you know, the change in mentality slightly, which the shift in strategy for him. I, it's probably a consistent theme that we're going to see with the uh, the rich list is that. Uh Business models are working successfully. Sure. Okay, um, number three, Jenna Reinhart made her money in iron ore and now investing in Wagyu steak for what it's worth. I think Wagyu is overrated. Gina's obviously, uh, her money comes from the iron ore and the resource boom has worked well in her favour. Yeah, it has. She's got that massive Roy Hill mine in uh, uh, Pilbara region of WA. So, you know, big export business as well, exporting to China. But yeah, so she's, uh, I guess, like a lot of people, be it international companies or rich Australians have invested a lot in agriculture in recent years probably the last five ten years has been a big boom in that she's got some huge holdings as you as you mentioned yeah she's got her you know cattle stations wagyu beef she's got a joint venture with a Chinese partner as well to own huge tracts of lands around Australia there's quite a few people on the rich list have got into that lately so she's got iron ore and agriculture sort of two you know pretty hot businesses and a bit away from the podium Clive Palmer is back but no guarantees we'll be back there as he's still got a few issues uh, with some ASIC charges. Clive, he's a bit of a weird one, um, especially if you've seen his Facebook videos. Can you tell us tell us a bit about Clive? Oh, Clive's one of the more uh, fascinating characters on the rich list. What can I say? I mean, the ups and downs with him, you could... Well, I mean, people have written books about it, right? I mean, you know, a guy goes into politics and becomes gets the uh, you know, the balance of power there for a while a few years ago. I mean, it's an, it's an amazing story of a guy that... I mean, look, you know, he's... I don't know, I mean, how will history rate him? He's just sort of a, a bit of a, a charlatan, a bit of a chancer, isn't he? Like he, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but like he's an opportunist, isn't he? I mean, he's a very, very smart guy. But at the, but at the same time, he just can't help getting himself into trouble either. I mean, <laughs> you say, I mean, you're right. He's, he's rocketed back up the rich list. He's a billionaire in our books. It's all based on the, a legal fight that he won in January. So he signed this iron ore deal with you know with with Chinese partners back in the eighties, and that's come through. He's meant to get royalties, a lot of royalties every year. The mine's not a fantastic mine, or the assets aren't great. So that the the Chinese partners, Citic, are having problems making money. But at the same time, they the agreement that they struck years and years ago with Clive means that they've got to pay him all these royalties every year. There was huge legal battles about it. He won the legal fight, and next next week he gets a check for three hundred and fifty million dollars couple of hundred million more that he'll get later this year or you know he gets a quarterly check of about 65 million or so he was telling me there's clearly that is clearly worth something and that's going to keep going for the next 20 years if as you say there's aren't more legal battles which there probably will be that's got a value to it we think that's you know you could probably value it a lot more than what we think clive probably thinks he's well, clive does he's told me he thinks he's the richest person in the country based on this deal and other things he's got too, but he keeps getting into trouble with his Queensland nickel. He's got problems with ASIC over the land dealings as well. So it's just an amazing roller coaster ride with him. And oh, that's just his Twitter feed. Yeah, yeah. So who are the up and comers? I saw uh, Rosalind Kogan. He's 35 years old and he's made his money uh, with uh, Kogan appliances. And uh, and there's also Tim Gurner, who's made his money in uh, in property and real estate. Who else is out there? 
Yeah, well, so those those guys are really interesting. They're in their thirties still and on the rich list. Uh, the Atlassian guys, uh, Mike Cannon, Brooks, and Scott Farquhar. I mean, they're 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 worth you know, five billion dollars each now from from their you know, I guess software business. Really, that's uh, it's all about collaborating and it's all about uh, you know working close together. It's a it's a tool that uh, you know officers use all around the world now. So. They went off and listed on the NASDAQ. They're still in their uh, mid to late 30s as well. I sort of keep saying this and thinking, my goodness me, we're, we're, you know, the list is uh, the list is littered with people who uh, you go, well, they've, they've had simple ideas. Why didn't I do that? But, yeah, they went and did it. So uh, I, I took the, my wife to a, uh, a Mexican restaurant in, uh, in Sydney for um, Valentine's Day one year. And she was furious because she knew it was tight ass Tuesday at the Mexican restaurant. <laughs> and Mike Cannon Brooks was there too. And I've gone, if it's good enough for him being a billionaire, well, we can do it too. So yes. I, well, there you go. Well, you don't become a billionaire by spending lots yeah. of money too, right? So yeah, I think that's. I think uh, smart people like that. So we've got a bunch of people in their thirties and the twenties coming through. That you know, I guess surfing the tech boom, right? Uh, Radek Sally with um, Swiss Vitamins, who's. Uh, made a lot of his money with the Daegu's hoarding the cranberry uh, powder tablets and sending them overseas. Uh, I think his wealth is in the vicinity of 400 million. Mm -hmm. Out of interest, who's the youngest that's made the... uh the rich list. Well, Roslyn, yeah, thirty-five years old. So he's he's the youngest, and there's yeah, there's a bunch of well, there's maybe half a dozen between that thirty-five and forty mark. But the average age on the list is actually 65, 66. So you know, once you make your wealth, um, that people tend to stick around for quite a while. We haven't had uh, a shakeout in the market for quite some time, right? It's ten years since yep. the GFC. I mean, I did the two thousand and eight rich list. I did the two thousand and nine rich list, and the GFC happened in between. And there was a huge change. We haven't had that for 10 years. So, you know, wealth has stayed pretty consistent and just kept going up and up. And it makes me wonder, you know, when's the next crash coming? Well, one person that has been on the up is Justin Hems. Hems just misses out on being among the record 76 billionaires on, on the list this year. Um, the Hems family bought properties, including the Establishment Hotel on George Street, where I've dropped a bit of money over the years. They spent $9 million to buy that in 1998. And the CBD Hotel on York Street, they bought in 93 for $3.1 million, And I, that's now known as the Ivy. I've also dropped a bit of money there too. So Peter Lynch, famous fund manager, used to talk about companies that he invested in being 10-baggers. Yet I read that these two properties are at least worth 50 times. It is, I don't think I've ever seen a 50-bagger. It's probably a, quite a common story though, that it, you know an investment does this many multiple times. Well, it's a commercial property boom in that case, isn't yeah. it, really? I mean, there's only a limited amount of space, I suppose, in Sydney and Melbourne. People uh, have the big CBD properties and they just keep going up and up. You're right. But if, I guess if you... I mean, we're talking something that's been held for, what, a quarter of a century as well, right? And it does sound like a lot of money, but uh, it's that compound interest uh, theory, isn't it? You know, you hold on to something that's a pretty decent asset and it just keeps going you know, up and up and up slowly but surely in that time. You know, it's not necessarily a huge, you know, double in one year, but over time, it certainly adds up. This podcast is brought to you by Six Park, Australia's leading robo-advisor. Six Park provides scaled professional investment advice online. Simply go to sixpark.com.au and take our free risk assessment and we will provide you with a recommendation for your own globally diversified investment portfolio and manage it for you. Investment fees are just a fraction of what others typically charge. For example, on a $10,000 investment, your total annual fees would just be $50 per year. To find out more, go to sixpark.com.au. John, I was just having a think. I've got 
no idea what 0.3 of a percent on 13 billion is for Anthony Pratt, but um, I think robot advice would be great for Anthony Pratt's money. Here's <laughs> this little side note there. Okay, let's turn to some overall themes. Typically, when people come into money, one of the suggestions is that they might retire earlier than they initially thought. But that's not what we see here with the rich list. They don't retire early. It seems like money isn't the motivation, but then again, money is the motivation. Is that is that what you see? Yeah, well, I, I did a story on Jack Cowan uh, just after the list came out, and he said to me, well, and I said, why? Just to give a bit of insight, Jack Cowan, Canadian that went to famously, I think, 10 people in back in Canada yeah, to get some money. 30 people. 30 yeah, people. Yeah. Um, for, is it a couple hundred thousand dollars yeah, each? Well, no, $10,000 each I, 50 years ago to back him into this venture. I could bring fast food to Australia, he told them. They backed him, which is incredible when you think that, you know, on the other side of the world, 30 Canadians in frozen Canada backed this guy who's going to move over to Australia back in 1968. I mean, Calling it Hungry Jacks. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, so KFC, Hungry Jacks, and here he is today worth, you know, a couple of billion dollars. So he's done very well. No, he said, look, I said, I guess we essentially boiled it down to why. And he said, well, you know, it's not the money, it's a scorecard. It's a, it's a measure of success. So it's a little bit like, look, you'd probably know more about this than I would, Ted, but, you know, I've always thought these guys have similar mentalities to athletes. They just want to keep excelling in things. They want to keep winning. They want to win all the time. And they never want, but, you know, they never want to retire either because they want to keep winning. So there's that thirst for, you know, winning on a deal. There's a thirst for uh, increasing the, the profits year on year. That doesn't necessarily mean that they, you know, get that money flowing to them so they can spend it. There's only a certain amount of, uh, private jets you can have I suppose in the world uh, or houses or cars or you know so on and so forth so it's about winning it's about beating your score from last time it's just that sort of relentless quest for uh, not perfection but it is you know trying to trying to beat what you did before no you're right and I, I do see that with footballers that everything's a competition and it's go to the buffet I'd win at the buffet <laughs> you know whatever it is um walk to the car park someone's going to walk there the quickest or you know and um you're right it is just a character trait that is i guess you see quite quite a lot throughout the football world and i'm sure that it um it's the same in the the business world too i think you're right i think yeah as you say everything's a contest in a way isn't it and so frank lowey i think 85 I'm, i'm not sure how old he is but has frank just retired or or is he just more just stepping away from westfield oh well i mean they've they've done a big deal to sell most of the Westfield assets, they're going to hold some shares in it, but they're almost going to go private in a way. So they've got the Lowy family group. So they've done a deal, $32 billion to to sell Westfield off to Unibail. Rodamco, a big French company. Uh, what does that mean for uh, shopping centres? Has Frank seen, uh, seen the future of retail? It's an interesting one, that one. So look, he's got his three sons there. His three sons are in their 50s, right? So, uh, But Frank's still uh, the patriarch of the family. I think everything will still go through him. Till you know the day's not around anymore. That's the way that a lot of them are. I yeah, mean, they retire just fiercely you know, compared to this. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and they just want to. Look, I think also. I mean, uh, and and Harry Triggerboff has said this to me as well. You know, he's eighty six. Well, sorry, he's eighty five. He turned eighty five this year. Well, you know, what else would I do? If I retire, then I'm going to die, right? They clearly don't want to die yet, so they just keep going. It keeps them occupied. It keeps them busy. I've seen it with Murdoch too, with Rupert Murdoch. I read that you said. Uh, Two common character traits people have are both cleverness and toughness. Which of the two characteristics is more common or more evident? Do you think? Well, is there one over the other, or is it an even mix? I think you've got to be. I think you've. I think a lot of people are clever, 
not everyone's tough, I suppose. So again, you know, tough equals ruthlessness in that case. Uh, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot of tough guys on that list, like the Lindsay Foxes of the world. You know, he's a tough competitor. I mean, they, they can, you know, they, they, I guess I'm equating, you know, toughness with competitiveness in that way. So they're tough. You know, they're tough on their, uh, you know, tough on the people that work for them. I mean, you know, try to be hard but fair, I suppose. They're tough. Uh, you know when they're competing with other companies. That's probably the trade. There's a lot of clever people, right? We have so many people going through university or whatever. But I think that's the, the, the toughness and the relentlessness is probably one that marks them apart. A final theme is so many people on the list have a link to sport. And not that they're former athletes, but they invest in sport and sporting teams, which, which reminds me of a quote, that the quickest way to become a millionaire is to start off being a billionaire and then to buy a football team. And I, I think people use it, that, that line for um, buying an airline too. Um, so it is interesting why, why the rich turn to sport with it not being a pretty, uh, traditionally a successful place to invest. But um, Gina Reinhart loves supporting Olympic teams and athletes. And a lot of the fans seem to be Carlton Football Club uh, <laughs> members, which I, I thought was quite funny seeing investing in a Carlton membership is probably not the most savvy of investments right now. But then I thought, well, they're probably contrarians. And uh, that is the contrarian investment right now is buying a Carlton Football Club membership. Well, I remember Greg, Greg Swan, when he was CEO of Carlton, told me once that uh, he'd figured out that there's more Carlton supporters on the rich list than uh, than any other club. But, I mean, not that that's really helped them much, though, has it? So. No, no. And um, I guess most famous of all is Nathan Tinkler. He was a billionaire uh, with big interests in the Newcastle Knights in the NRL and owned the Newcastle Jets in the A-League a and then went uh, bankrupt in 2016. Yeah, I'm not sure that was completely down to his sporting interest. No, he certainly no. spent a lot of money on it. I mean, actually, horse racing is one that he spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on. I mean, that's another one. If you if you widen sport to, to to horse racing, then you've got even more. I mean, that's a, you know, not everyone not everyone's like Lloyd Williams and can win six Melbourne Cups, right? I mean, <laughs> but Lloyd spends a lot of money to do that. So that wouldn't, that's, if you look at that just as an investment, that's not a good investment either, right? But the, there's a glory behind it too. I guess, again, that they want to win things. Uh, I think you're, I think, I think you're actually uh, onto something when you think about them being, you know, frustrated sports people, right? We all grew up uh, wanting to be famous sports stars, right? But, uh, you know, only a certain amount of people get to do that, right? And uh, you, I don't know, you, you probably ask Lindsay Fox, he's probably some of his happiest memories are probably playing in Kilda Reserves or something like that, right? So, uh, Well, I think he famously bought the whole team a footy trip um, uh, not that long ago. Well, it's probably... Uh, 10 or 20 years ago, but now. But um, I, I think he is quite proud of his link to the St Kilda Football Club and the memories that he has there. Yeah, exactly right. So I think it's, again, that sort of quest for glory in a way. So not everyone gets it wrong, though, with um, business and sport. And Frank Costa from uh, Costa Group is one notable one who was former chairman of the Geelong Football Club and has done great things for the footy team. We've also got some athletes, actually quite a lot of athletes, on the young rich list that you put together. And uh, I'll just go through some now. Adam Scott, the golfer, estimated wealth of $81 million. Andrew Bogut, who's estimated at $77 million. Uh, Richard's Report fan, Andrew Welsh, estimated at $66 million. If you're interested, Andrew and I sat down for a chat in a previous episode. Um, check it out. Harry Kuehl, estimated at $54 million, uh, followed by Jason Day, Tim Cale and Jeff o Ogilvy. The one player that I'm interested to keep an eye on is Ben Simmons because if his basketball career progresses the way that many believe it will, 
he's a, an athlete that could potentially progress from the young rich list to becoming into the total. Have you got an idea of, as to what his earning capacity could be? Yeah, the, he's, you're right. He's a fascinating one. So I think he's already on a Nike contract of something like between 5 and $10 million a year. Uh, and if his career keeps going, I mean, he's a, he could potentially be a global superstar. How many Australian athletes could you say are global superstars? I'll, I'll give you one who used to be on the rich list until uh, really the cutoff level just went so high, Greg Norman. So uh, he's a man who you know was a very, very successful person on the course, clearly won a couple of majors, number one player in the world, all that sort of thing. But his brand was so big, you know, the Great White Shark, that it went across clothing lines, it went across... Uh, you know, there's, there's Great White Shark wine, there's steakhouses, there's property developments, there's all these different things. So he parlayed his sporting success into business success. So, look, someone like Ben Simmons might, might just make enough money on the court anyway to make the list, as you say. Uh, and, you know, he could be on $20, $30 million a year pretty soon. But there's a big leap from doing that every year to a Greg Norman and going into business as well and parlaying that. So really it probably depends on how much uh, or how interested he is on in making that big leap. It's, you know, I mean, to get onto the rich list now, you've got to be worth 380 odd million dollars. That's a, that's a lot of money. And, you know, it's funny when you say, oh, well, that guy's only worth 200. That's so much money. Yeah. But it's not even almost halfway there towards making the rich list these days. What about advice you've received from the people you've spoken to or that they openly share with readers. Can you give us some insight there? I think a lot of them, and our readers love the, the classic entrepreneur's tale because they identify with it themselves, right? So the people might make money early in their life and they always they always seem to come to a bit of a fork in the road moment, uh, you know, overcoming setbacks. So, the, you know, the business might go close to being un- going under. They might diversify into something wrong or, you know, something that doesn't work out. There's, there's so many tales of that on the rich list. You know, Anthony Pratt's father, Richard, very, very went, went very close to going under back when he diversified into uh, into financial services, you know, back before the 87 crash, right? Frank Lowy owned Channel 10 at one stage, diversifying away from Westfield. That cost him hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think the, the answer is that they always tell you is stick to your core business, stick to your knitting, stick to what you know best. Don't do things that are flavour of the month, you know, whatever it is. Uh, if you don't understand it. And John, you're leaving the financial review. How much longer will you be at the AFR for? And uh, where can people find your articles? Yeah, I'll be there until the end of June. So bringing together, we'll bring to an end of 18 years at Fairfax, uh, Ted. So it's uh, maybe it's, I don't know, it's uh, is that the kin to getting uh, traded after, you know, when you're, when you're no good anymore or something in football or when you're towards the end of your career. So and then I'm heading over to, to the Australian actually. So and I'm looking forward to a big challenge uh, and I'll be there towards the end of uh, July after a few weeks off. So, uh, look, a lot of a lot of that uh, you know, wealth, you know, tracking the fortunes of Australia's richest people and uh, that sports business niche that I've carved out a little bit too. And, John, you're on Twitter with a social media and I'm sure listeners can find you there. John, thank you very much for the chat today. Oh, thanks, Ted. been a pleasure. Wait a second before I go. Don't forget to give the Richards Report a rating on iTunes and a follow on Facebook. See you next time on the Richards Report.